I've got a lot of stuff this morning. This could go a whole lot of different directions. If, you're, if you'd read ahead and you're looking at Acts chapter 25 and 26, there's, there's a whole lot of material there, but a lot of it we've seen already. So just a quick summary of what's going on in the book of Acts. You see Jesus' ministry in the gospel of Luke. So Luke wrote both the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. It's a two-part series, right? So in the gospel of Luke, what Luke shows us is Jesus' ministry here on earth while he was here. In the book of Acts, what we see is Luke telling us how Jesus's ministry continued here on earth while he is up in heaven through the power of the Spirit who enables his church, his, his, his followers, witnesses, right? And so the book of Acts is all about Jesus's followers carrying on the gospel ministry by the power of the Spirit. And so through the book of Acts, you see the gospel message as, peop, as the followers of Christ are witnessing to what they've seen and what they've heard about Christ. And so we've seen that spread from Jerusalem where it was primarily a Jewish group of believers to then it spread to non-Jewish groups of believers. We've seen two main characters throughout the book of Acts, Peter in the front half and then uh, the apostle Paul. Uh, we started to see him in the book of Acts start really in Acts chapter 6, but he became prominent in Acts chapter 9. And so Peter was primarily the one taking the gospel message to the Jewish people. And Paul is the one who's been commissioned by God, by Christ, specifically to take the gospel to the non-Jewish people. Now we've seen Paul's story a couple times in Acts already twice. Today, we're going to see it the third time. So you saw it in Acts chapter 9, and that's a third-person account where Luke tells us this is what happened to this guy named Saul, who we also call Paul. And so you read about how he was on his way to persecute more Christians, which was his pattern, and on his way to persecute other Christians, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, revealed himself to, to Saul on that road and had a, had a conversation with Saul that ultimately ended up in Saul converting, changing, being changed in his heart, believing in Christ, the very one he had been persecuting, and now he is a follower of Christ, the very one he had been persecuting. So we saw Luke tell that story. In the last couple of weeks, we've really been in the, in the midst of a larger story in the book of Acts where Paul, who has been imprisoned for proclaiming the gospel, and so we've seen him go before different groups. We saw him go before a Jewish council and there he proclaimed the gospel and he told about his conversion uh, to Christianity, how Jesus had revealed himself. So that was the second time in the book of Acts that we saw Paul's story, but it was the first time where it was told in a first person account where Paul himself was telling this is what happened. So there was some, some different details in there that he included that Luke didn't include in the other one. Paul has continued to be on trial, and this morning now we find him still on trial. This time he's before a guy named Festus, who is a new governor, and he took over for Felix, who we saw last week, but he's also going to be before another ruler, King Agrippa. And so he's going to be testifying before these two people, and so once again, for the third time in the book of Acts, we're going to see Paul's story. And he's going to tell it in a first-person account. Now, this third time through, there are some details that Paul includes that are specific, um, that, that, that make sense more for the audience that he has, so he includes them now. So just a brief note, when you're reading these different things and you see Paul tell his story, or Luke tell Paul's story in 9, and then Paul tells it again, I think it was Acts chapter 22, and then now we're in Acts chapter 26, and he's telling him his story, and you see these differing details, don't let your first conclusion be, oh, the Bible's got contradictions because they don't line up here. No, instead, let your first thought be, okay, well, who was Paul telling his story to? Who was his audience? Who was Luke writing to? Who was his audience? 
Because just like you and I today, when we tell stories, when we tell factual events, there are some details that we include because of specific people we're talking to. For instance, if you know a lot about car mechanic type things and you're talking to someone who does not know a lot about car mechanic type of things, you're going to say a lot of thingamajigs. This doohickey there. You see that turning, turning knob there? You're going to say things like that. You're going you're to speak in a way that they understand, but you're not lying to them. You're not, you're not giving them all the facts and details that you could give them because it wouldn't be beneficial to them or it wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense to them in their context. However, if you know a lot about car mechanic stuff and you take your, your car to the mechanic, you're going to start using technical names like catalytic converter and, 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 and fuse pump or, or thing. I'm, that's about as far as I'm going because I'm going to start making stuff up, right? But you're going you're gonna to give more details. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna use facts that you didn't share before, but you're going to share in this case because you have a different audience. That should be the first place you go. Who are they telling their story to? So Paul is telling his story now to a new governor, a Roman, a non-Jewish person, but a king also who has some Jewish knowledge. So he's going to include some things in there. What I want to do this morning, because 25 and 26 of Acts, chapter 25, there's a lot, but really it's telling the story of Paul being before Festus and King Grippa. I want to zoom in on just a few verses in Acts chapter 26. And, and, and this morning's message, since we've looked at Paul's story a couple times already, what I want to do is pull out some of the things that are unique to this one. And I, and I hope what it's going to do is help us see how Paul is shaped by the gospel and then how we should be shaped by the gospel. And so um, nothing fancy this morning. I don't have anything to help you remember except this. A person shaped by the gospel understands, and I'm going to give you a few things that we're going to pull out of, the, out of these verses that a person who's shaped by the gospel understands. Okay, so let's, let's walk through it here. The first thing a person shaped by the gospel understands is God's role in salvation. So a person shaped by the gospel Someone who is being influenced and being informed by, whose life is submitted to the gospel. Here's something that they understand as they grow in their understanding of, of this. They understand God's role in salvation. Here's what Paul says, verse 16, Acts chapter 26, verse 16. He's told, but get up and stand on your feet. This is, what, this is what Paul is being told by Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. So Paul is in the middle of his testimony. Jesus says to Paul, but get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this reason, to designate you in advance as a servant and a witness to the things you have seen and to the things which I will appear, uh, in which I will appear to you. I will rescue you from your own people, that's the Jewish people, and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they turn from their darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So we're going to hone in right now in verse 18 for the next few minutes. God's role in salvation. So Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, re reveals himself to Paul and says, I I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. He says, I've already marked you out for that. This is what you were chosen for, to go and be the ambassador to the Gentiles, to go and carry the message of Christ, the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. But listen how in this account, as Paul's telling the story, he includes some new details that we have not had before. He says in verse 18, as, as, as Jesus specifically says, and I'm going to deliver you from the Gentiles because he's saying you're going to be taken captive, you're going to be imprisoned. But Paul, uh, Paul is being assured of Christ's comfort and Christ's protection. So he says, I'm going I'm to protect you from your own people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. 
So he says, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. I'm gonna protect you from the Gentiles. By the way, that's the people I'm sending you to. And here's the reason. Here's the purpose that God is sending Paul to the Gentiles, to open their eyes so that they can turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified. Let's break that up. The reason that, God is, or that Christ is sending Paul to the, the, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, is so that their eyes can be opened. So that their eyes can be opened, which assumes what? Their eyes are closed, spiritually speaking. There is a blindness over the Gentile people that God is sending Paul, and Paul is going to be used by God to open the eyes, the spiritual eyes of the Gentiles. Now, pause for a minute, because as you read that, you, you could look at that and say, oh, so Paul is going to be the one to open the eyes. Mm -mm. No, God is the only one who opens spiritual eyes that are blind. God is the only one who removes spiritual blindness, but he does so through people that he uses and through whom he proclaims the gospel. See, this experience that Paul is describing shaped his understanding of how God works because it shows up in other places when Paul's writing letters. For instance, he writes to the, um, the, the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 4, and we're just gonna look at a few verses here where he says, hey, in verse three of 2 Corinthians 4, even if our gospel is veiled, in other words, even if there's some people who don't understand it, they think it's foolishness, he says, even if it is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. Another way of talking about those who have not believed in Christ. They're currently under the wrath of God. He says, only veiled to those who are perishing, among whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who do not believe, so they would not see the light of the glorious uh, gospel of Christ. Pause there for a minute, because what Paul is saying as he writes to the Corinthians tells us his understanding of God's role in salvation. He says, there is a spiritual blindness on people who have not believed. They're currently perishing. Guess what? That's not something Paul made up. Jesus would talk about that in John chapter 3, verse 17 and forward. See, if you read John chapter 3 or you think about John chapter 3, you think about verse 16, for God so loved the world. And that's a great verse, but you've got to keep on reading to understand the fullness of that verse because he also goes on to explain that people who have not believed in Christ are currently perishing. And he's speaking of a spiritual state of being before God. A person who is currently perishing is someone who is left in their sin, they're still dead in their sin, spiritually dead, and they're under the wrath of God for that sin. They are perishing. Paul's understanding is the same as Jesus' understanding, which makes sense since it's Jesus who revealed himself to Paul and says, I'm going to send you to open the eyes of the Gentiles because there's a blindness there. And they understood that. And so Paul understood that, that there's a spiritual blindness that is upon people who have not believed in Christ. And that blindness, we're gonna come back to this in a minute, is put there by Satan. See, the God of this age, that's not a reference to the God uh, who created all things. Little g, most, most translations help us out by putting little g. The God of this age, sometimes he's also called the prince of this world in John chapter 12, verse 30. Sometimes he's called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter two. These are all references to Satan. Satan has blinded the eyes of humanity so that they cannot look upon God and see the gloriousness of his gospel apart from that blindness being removed. Hence, Jesus says to Paul, I'm sending you to the Gentiles so that their eyes may be opened. God's role in salvation includes opening eyes of people who are spiritually blind. Let's go back to Acts though for a minute. 
Okay, because he says, I want you to open their eyes and look, look, at, the, look at the phrasing. I'm gonna get kind of technical this morning. Look at the phrasing. Open their eyes so that. There's a relationship here between the next phrase and open their eyes. Open their eyes so that they can turn, which implies what? If a person's eyes are not opened by God, they cannot turn to God. There is nothing in any person in and of yourself that will enable you to turn to God apart from God's grace being extended to you and to me. The eyes of a blind person must be opened. Now, pause for a minute because you, you, you hear me talking about this and maybe you're thinking, well, that's an insulting way to talk about people who have not believed in Jesus. And first I want to say, I'm, I'm not making that phraseology up, okay? So first I'm pointing just what the scriptures say here. But, but two, you, you got to understand, think about a person who was born physically blind. A person who is born physically blind does not know anything about what light looks like, feels like. In fact, to them, darkness is not strange because they've never known light, but if a person who has been born uh, blind physically has, has some a way, is, is their eyes are open to where now they can see the light, now darkness becomes a strange thing. Darkness becomes something that is not the norm, should not be the way it is. That's how we are spiritually born. We are born spiritually blinded. And so a, a person who is not trusted in Christ, we don't know that we're in darkness, we don't know that the way that we're living is, is necessarily a strange way of living. It's, a, it's an alien way of living. It's not the way that God intended unless God in his grace helps us to see that by exposing that darkness with his light. There is a need for eyes to be opened. And so Paul, I'm sending you to open their eyes. So God is going to work through Paul. He's going to proclaim the message of the gospel and God is going to open their eyes so that they can turn. Now, let's look at that next phrase. So they can turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. This turning that, that God is sending Paul to be used, the turning is repentance. See, because the people that Paul is going to are people who worship all kinds of other gods. They worship all kinds of gods that they've grown up knowing, worshiping. Idols are included in that. They worship those gods in ways that, that the true God does not need to be worshipped, is not appropriate to worship. And so he's going to them, and they're going to have to turn from worshiping the gods they grew up worshiping, and they're going to have to turn instead to God. Now, if that bothers you a little bit, so let, me, let me just put before you one of the heroes of the Christian faith. Abraham. And let me just tell you that in the book of Deuteronomy, you can find out about Abraham that he was an idol worshiper in his land. Lived in the land of Babylon. Did nothing that we are told of to impress the, the, the true and living God. But while he was living his life worshiping those idols that he grew up worshiping, God revealed himself to Abraham and said, follow me. So, so, so listen, people have to turn from something and in turning from something, they have to turn to something. And God is telling Paul, I'm gonna send you so that their eyes may be opened and they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. There's a repentance that has to take place. Okay, now, now we're gonna come back to that and I'm gonna hit on that a little bit more in a minute. But Paul, you're going to the, the Gentiles so that their eyes may be opened so that they can turn. Okay, God's role in salvation, you cannot open spiritually blind eyes on your own. 
nothing you can do, no, no persuasion that you can bring to the table, no debate that you can win. Even the way you live your life, as good and necessary as that is, none of that can open up a spiritually blind heart. You remember Lydia in Acts chapter 16? Gospel is presented to her, and the way that Luke describes her response is God opened her heart so that she could believe. Unless God opens a person's heart, they can't turn. Your role in salvation is not to change a heart. Your role in salvation is coming up in just a minute. But God is the one who opens the eyes, the spiritual eyes, so that people can turn. Okay, look at, look at something else here. So we're going to go to Romans. See, Paul understood that even though God is the one who opens the heart, it's necessary that people, when their eyes are open spiritually and they're turning from darkness, they're turning from Satan, they've got to have something to turn to. So how do they know what to turn to? Romans 10, verse 14 and 17, Paul says this. How are they to call on the one they have not believed in? And how are they to believe in one they have not heard of? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How timely is the arrival of those who proclaim the good news? But not all have obeyed the good news. For Isaiah, the prophet, says, Lord, who has believed our report? Consequently, faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes through the preached word of Christ. So Paul understood God is the one who opens the eyes. But when their eyes are open, they have to have something to turn and believe upon. And that leads us to humanity's response to God's salvation. So God opens eyes. He uses people, followers of Christ usually, he uses people to bring the gospel message so that as their eyes are open, they can respond by repenting, by turning and believing in Christ. Here is humanity's response to God's salvation. Verse 19 and you saw a little bit of it in verse 18 when he says, so they can turn. Verse 19 says, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared to those in Damascus first and then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the Gentiles, here it is, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds consistent with repentance. What is humanity's response to God's salvation? When God opens the eyes of spiritually blind people, the response is you repent. You turn from whatever it is you're trusting in, the gods that you're worshiping, the, the things that you're placing all of your hope in to, to get you access to God, whether it's I'm living this life and I'm hoping that I live well enough to tip the scales at the end. I'm not sure how I'm gonna do, but I hope that I'm good enough to get further up in line. So maybe they're not full capacity by the time I get there. Well, whatever it is that you're, you're placing your hope and your trust in, or not placing your hope and trust in, if you believe that this life is all there is and that we cease to exist when we die, if you're at that spot, the, re the response when God opens your eyes is, I turn, I turn from that and I turn to Christ. I trust in the gospel. I trust in Jesus' death and his resurrection on my behalf, but I'm getting ahead of myself because Paul's gonna hit that too. God's role in salvation, opening spiritual eyes, removing veils, removing blinders, opening hearts so that people can respond. What is humanity's response? It's turning, it's repenting. Okay, but we're gonna, we're gonna go on because we're gonna camp on some of these other ones a little more too. A person who's shaped by the gospel also understands God's word regarding the gospel. Okay, here's what Paul says. Verse 22. I've experienced help from God to this day, and so I stand testifying to both small and great. Pause for a minute. Paul has found himself before governors, 
before rulers of different types. Now he's before a king. He's actually on his way to go stand before the emperor, Caesar. Paul says, I've found myself before people small and great. And God has helped me to this day. I've said nothing except that what the prophets and Moses said was going to happen. Specifically this, that the Christ was to suffer and be the first to rise from the dead to proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So Paul has been saying this the whole time he's on trial. I am not saying anything new. Because the Jewish people are claiming that he's, he's abandoning the law. The Jewish people are saying he's, he's desecrating the temple. The Jewish people are saying he belongs to a cult. And he's saying, I'm not saying anything that they don't already know. See, Paul has kept pointing his accusers back to, I'm on trial for the resurrection. I'm on trial for the hope that I hold in the resurrection. Specifically, last week he said the resurrection of Christ. Okay, but here's the thing. Paul has continuously pointed them back and said, this is what's in the prophets and in Moses. Now, the way we would sum that up today is, this is what's in the Old Testament. When they spoke about Moses and the prophets, that was a way to sum up all the writings of what we call today the Old Testament. Okay, now they didn't have the New Testament. Why? Because they were living it, right? It was being written to them as they were living it. So they didn't have the New Testament scriptures. They might have had a few letters by this point, right? But they didn't have what you and I have, a Bible that has two parts, an Old Testament and a New Testament, 66 books. They didn't have that. So when they reference the scriptures, a lot of times what they're referencing is the Old Testament scriptures as we know them. When they say things like, that according to Moses and the prophets, he's saying according to all of the writings, which includes Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, right, the Pentateuch, it includes what they call the prophets, which includes what we call the prophets, but also that was a way of summing up everything in between, which includes the historical writings, which includes the Psalms and Proverbs and, and all the poetry. So they would sum it up by saying all the scriptures, and that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I'm just proclaiming what the prophets and Moses said. Now, remember, he's, he's in this room before King Agrippa and Festus, and there's a crowd also in there, many of them Jews. So these Jews are hearing Paul say, I'm proclaiming what's in the scriptures that they all read. Moses talked about this, and here's specifically what, what Moses and the prophets talked about. This is very specific. He says that the Christ, the Messiah, that's the one that God had promised would come, that's the one all the Jewish people are looking for, that the Christ was to suffer and be the first to rise from the dead, to proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. Okay, so what I want to do, I'm going to show you, I think I've got three different sets of verses up here from the, the, the Old Testament where these things are talked about. It is not the only three places. This is a summary. You can find this in other places, okay? So let's take the three parts that Paul talks about, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and that he would proclaim light to both people, uh, the Jews and the Gentiles. That he would suffer. Isaiah 53. If you've been around church for a while, you've heard this. But here's what Isaiah, several hundred years prior, talks about this person who was going to come, who was going to be the Messiah, and here's what he says. He was wounded because of our rebellious deeds, crushed because of our sins. He endured punishment that made us well. Because of his wounds, we have been healed. All of us had wandered off like sheep. Each of us had strayed off on his own path. But the Lord caused the sin of all of us to attack him. He was treated harshly and afflicted, but he did not even open his mouth. Like a lamb led to, to the slaughtering block, like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not even open his mouth. He was led away after an unjust trial, 
But who even cared? Indeed, he was cut off from the land of the living because of the rebellion of his own people. He was wounded. Isaiah wrote that several hundred years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene. And we look at the life of Jesus and the historical facts about Jesus. And this is why people in the New Testament started following Jesus and they're saying we're worshiping the way because they understood Jesus was the one fulfilling this. That he was the one who came to suffer. Why did the Jews not get this? Because the Jews thought that this was talking about them. That's a common understanding of these verses by Jews. Because they think that the Jewish people, the people of God, are going to suffer. And they do, and they have. But they understood this to be talking about them, and so they had no, no, no room in their understanding for this to be an individual person. And so when an individual person shows up on the scene do, doing all these things, fulfilling all these things, they don't see that. But here's the thing. Jesus came to be the true and right Israel. See, God's people Israel failed. God's people Israel, they, they were supposed to be used by God to bring the light to the nations. God's plan as he revealed it through Abraham was, I'm gonna bless all the nations of the earth through you. And then God narrowed down who he was gonna work through in the Old Testament, Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob. And that people became known as the people of Israel. And God was gonna work through them and as they related to God rightly and God related with them, all the nations would be able to see that and they would be used by God to bring the nations to God. God had always planned on bringing all kinds of people into his kingdom, not just Jewish people. But the Jewish people continuously rebelled. The Jewish people continuously rejected God. But God's plan was not thwarted. You see, because there was still one coming who was going to be the one who fulfilled all of the promises, all of the covenants. Jesus was the true Israel. He comes and he fulfills everything that God promised to the nation of Israel. So that then now, through Jesus, God carries on the promise of Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth. That's how this is fulfilled through Christ. And so the Jewish people don't see that, though. But why don't they see that? Remember what we looked at first? Because there's a spiritual blindness there. In fact, Paul, again, in Romans chapter 11, though, will talk about how specifically the Jewish people, there has been a temporary partial, partial hardening of the Jewish people's hearts until the time of the Gentiles is complete. There is a spiritual blindness there that keeps them from seeing and understanding that this scripture points to the one that they crucified. Okay, so the Christ must suffer. Paul says, I've been talking about what Moses and the prophets have said. Here's one example, the Christ must suffer. Okay, there's others. But here, let's go on. What about the resurrection? Did the Old Testament that we know of speak of the resurrection? Yes. Now, I'm going to give you an example in Daniel, but there's also examples in, in the, the first five books where Moses was. In fact, Jesus appeals to Exodus, and he says, um, he appeals to the spot where God reveals himself to Moses through the burning bush, and, and Moses says, well, who should I tell him sent me when he was going to Pharaoh? And God says, tell him I am sent you. And he talks about God's name being, I am the, fa I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not I was the God, I am the God. You can't be a God to someone who's dead. Okay, that's where Jesus appeals to. All right? But here's Daniel, this is very clear. Daniel, chapter 12. At that time, Michael, the great prince who watches over your people will rise. That's Michael the archangel. There will be a time of distress unlike any other from the nation's beginning, the nation of Israel, up to that time. 
But at that time, your own people, all those whose names are found written in the book, will escape. Look at it, verse two. Many of those who sleep, that's a way of speaking kindly about people who have died. Many of those who sleep in the dusty ground will awake, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting abhorrence. Do you remember uh, in the last couple of weeks we saw Paul in front of this trial? He says, I'm on trial for the resurrection. I, I believe in a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. That was last week. He's pulling it from places like this. The book of Daniel. Okay, that's the Christ will resurrect. He will rise. What about he'll be a light to the nations? This is Isaiah 42, 1 through 7, but we're going to skip verses 2 through 4 for the sake of just time and space. He starts out in Isaiah 42, verse 1. Here is my servant whom I support, my chosen one in whom I take pleasure. I have placed my spirit on him. He will make just decrees for the nations. Now that is a reference to the Messiah that is to come. Jewish people today will read that and they'll say that's a reference to the nation of Israel. And, God, they, and they would call themselves God's son. Okay? But that's by speaking of the Messiah. He goes on speaking of this one who is to come. Verse 5, this is what the true God, the Lord, says. The one who created the sky and sketched it out. The one who fashioned the earth and everything that lives on it. The one who gives breath to the people on it and life to those who live on it. I, the Lord, officially commission you. I take hold of your hand. I protect you and make you a covenant mediator. He's speaking of the new covenant for people. And to a, a light to the nations. Remember what Paul said? And then look at verse 7, because this goes back to the first part of what, what, what we looked at. To open blind eyes, to release prisoners from dungeons, those who live in darkness from prisons. Paul's theology is built right off the Old Testament. He's not making things up. He's not making anything new. Instead, through Christ, what Christ does for us, he fulfills the law, meets all the righteous requirement of the law, and then he helps illumine, opens our eyes to understand how all of that points to him. And he did that in the end of Luke when he was walking with those two disciples. Remember, this is, this is nothing new. He's walking with these new two disciples after he's risen from the dead. He's cloaked himself. They can't, they can't tell who he is. And they, he's walking with them. And, and Luke tells us that he explains, starting with Moses and the rest of the prophets and all the Old Testament, how all of that pointed to him. And their hearts were burning within them. A person who is shaped by the gospel understands God's role in salvation. They understand humanity's response in salvation. They understand God's word. That's what we're looking at here, God's word regarding the gospel. I don't think I, I said that phrase, what we think we went past it, but that's where we're on is uh, the person shaped by the gospel understands God's word regarding the gospel. But it goes further. A person shaped by the gospel understands humanity's role in evangelism sharing the gospel, communicating the gospel. Last set of verses, and we got one more point after this. Do you believe the prophets, Paul says to King Agrippa? I know that you believe. Agrippa said to Paul, in such a short time, are you persuading me to become a Christian? Paul replied, I pray to God that whether in a short or a long time, not only you, but also all those who are listening to me today could become such as I am, except for these chains. He's saying, I, I want you to become a Christian. Yes, Okay, so, so here's, here's humanity's role in evangelism, okay, because none of this, understanding God's role to open up hearts, understanding humanity's response to, to repent, understanding the gospel, the word of God regarding the gospel, none of that gives us the excuse to be lazy in evangelism. 
Scriptures don't teach that and good theology doesn't allow for that. Instead, it drives you and motivates you to share the gospel. Because when you have seen that living in darkness is strange and the light has illumined the darkness and opened your eyes and sets you free from the power of Satan and instead puts you under God, why wouldn't you want others to know that same freedom? If you don't have that drive, do you know that freedom? Here's humanity's role in evangelism, to proclaim it. And we've seen it riddled throughout these verses. Romans 10 talked about it. How can they believe unless they hear? How can they hear unless someone proclaims it? God in his wisdom has chosen to use people, usually his followers, but not always, use people to proclaim the gospel, to tell of what God has done through Christ so that people, when their eyes are open, have something to turn and believe in. He says, I, 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 want to, I want you all to be like me. So Paul has been proclaiming the gospel. That's humanity's role in evangelism. But last point, look at that. A person shaped by the gospel also understands God's role in evangelism. Paul says, I pray to God that whether in a short or a long time. You know what undergirds a statement like that? I have no control over the timing. I can't force you into the kingdom of God. I can't manipulate you to get your heart changed, whether it's a short time or a long time. Listen, when we talk about urgency and evangelism, it's not necessarily only tied to timing. It's time to result. I mean, it's tied to result. I pray that whether in a short or a long time, God, that Paul is trusting the sovereignty of God. God is the one who, who controls the timing here. It's out of Paul's hands. He gets that. But the urgency comes in I want you all to be like me except for the chains that I'm currently in. That's the urgency of evangelism that I long and I desire to see you like I am set free from darkness, set free from the power of Satan. That's the urgency. But what happens is, is we've, we've, we've left that kind of to the side and we've, we've elevated timing. And what happens when you elevate timing is you start trying to figure out how to get people to respond. And you can't. Our role is not to get people to respond. Our role is to put the gospel before them so that when God opens their hearts, they have something to turn to and believe in. That's it. And so what happens is when we, when we elevate our role in evangelism and we think we have more control than we do, we start manipulating environments and we, we start singing 15 verses of just as I am until someone actually comes up. We wait for cards. Some of you got that. We wait for cards to be signed and we wait for hands to be raised. We want some kind of evidence to validate what we're doing, but we're not even asking the question a lot of times in those cases, what is God doing? Listen, God can work through all of those ways. He could call someone on the 15th verse or the 15th round of the last verse. He could do that. And he probably has done that just to spite humanity. <laughs> but the key is it's not up to you and me. Our role in evangelism is to proclaim the gospel, to be faithful to put it out there, to carry it with urgency, yes. But we can't forget God's role in evangelism. The timing is his. Paul says this again in 1 Corinthians, that some plant, some water. But guess what he gives the credit to God for? Growth. You and I can plant, you and I can water, but we don't cause growth. We don't bring about change in people's hearts. So, I know this has been a, a whirlwind, but a lot. But Paul's theology that we see here, 
shows us that he's a person shaped by the gospel. And what we can take from this is if, if I'm shaped by the gospel, these are the kinds of things that I'm gonna, I'm gonna grow in understanding. I know some of you are going, I've never heard this before. It's okay. That's what being shaped by the gospel is about. You, you're continually submitting yourself to the word of God and letting that shape you and your understanding. But what, I don't like this. That's okay. Wrestle with it. And what we ultimately have to do with everything we are confronted with in the word of God is, I may not like this, but what does the word of God say? And I'm gonna keep digging and keep digging because maybe I misunderstood it. So I'm gonna keep digging and keep digging. But at the end of the day, where I cannot end up is I don't care what the word of God says. I like this option. I, I, I know it says that, but it doesn't feel right to me. You've elevated yourself over God. Your world has become self-centered and not God-centered. A person shaped by the gospel understands God's role in salvation, humanity's response to God's salvation, God's word regarding the gospel, humanity's role in evangelism, God's role in evangelism, and there will be a tension always. And you cannot reconcile the tension between those because as soon as you try to rec reconcile that tension, you're going to err one way or the other. So before we wrap up, let's just take a moment. We like to, 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 to dive into the scriptures and then just give you a few, few seconds, minute maybe or so to just reflect on what you've heard and ask God, what do you have for me this morning? So let's do that. God, as I consider the way that you work in salvation, I start with first my own experience and I think, God, why? I'm not even deserving, so why? I mean, as I think about who I am and, and as I grow in, even, even in your grace, God, I'm still aware of all the sin that lurks within me and I think, why? Why me? I'm so still undeserving. And yet, God, there's places in the scriptures and there's people like Paul who help us to understand how you work in our lives. And when I see that, God, I'm, I'm just drawn to be more awe-inspired by who you are because then I, the question of why me is just met with how great. That, God, I'm so undeserving, every one of us so undeserving, and yet, God, you have moved in your grace toward us. That, 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 God, were you not to move in your grace toward us, we would still be left in our sinfulness, still be left in our blindness, still be left dead in our trespasses and sin, still be left in the power of Satan, still be in darkness. And yet you moved toward us in your grace, removing, and, and you remove those blinders and those veils so that as the light, your light exposes the darkness, we see you for who you truly are and the gloriousness of the gospel through Christ and the hope that is offered to sinful people. And we respond by turning from that which we've trusted in, that which we've lived enslaved to, and we instead turn to you, and there we find you. Loving Father, you've not swept sin under the rug, you've dealt with it so that we can come fully into the family of God and be called sons, be called daughters. You take us out of the domain of darkness and transfer for us into the kingdom of your beloved son, Jesus.
You do all of this, God, and we've not earned it. You do all of this, and it's not like we were impressive to you. How can sinful people, created beings, be impressive to the very God who created them? The very God who, who is untouched by sin. You're so good. And then, God, as I think about your wisdom, how you allow us to be a part of what you're doing by sharing with others what you've done in our lives, what you've done in this world and continue to do, I think, God, wow, I wouldn't have done it that way. <laughs> but I think, wow, your wisdom must be something great. And I, as I think, God, about how, how you, you, you don't give us more than, than what we can handle as far as our pride goes because you still leave the growth up to you. Because God, you know us and the sin that lurks within us, we still try to find things to be prideful about. Even when we look at things like this and see that God, were it not for you working, we would not have even been able to see clearly. And yet our pride swells up and says, but I believed when I was younger. And that makes me better than someone who believed when they're older. God, there's no room. There's no room for any of that because it's grace. And so God, this morning, there might be some here who this is all new to them, or, or maybe it's not, but maybe this morning they're hearing it and it's making sense for the first time in a way that it's never made sense before. God, I pray that right now, if that's, if that's someone in this room, that you would open their hearts, that they would be able to see the gloriousness of your gospel and the, the hope that's offered to us in Christ, that they could turn and trust in Christ and stop trusting in the things that they're trusting in. God, give them that new life that you, you promise us. Make them new. Give them a hope and a desire for you that they've never had before. God, for, for us, stir our affections for Christ. Let, let things like this not intimidate us, even if we can't grasp, but, but, but stretch us, yes, but then stir our affections for Christ. Wow. That we would not be unmoved when we consider how you work and how you move. Shape our lives with your truth, with your word, with your gospel. Let our lives be ones marked by that. And let us be a church marked by that. So God, as we depart from here, would you, would you let that ring true in our lives and shine so evident that we are not people of darkness, but people of light. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you guys next week.